Section 41 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 12, France, by Stanley Leaves, Part 3 complicated as is the financial system of france at the end of the middle ages an effort to understand it is not wasted the life of the middle ages for the most part escapes all quantitative analysis and even the detail of anatomy and function must in great measure remain unknown it is much then that we are permitted to know the main outlines of the scheme which supplied the means for the expulsion of the english for the long struggle with charles the bold and maximilian and for the italian campaigns as well as for the not inconsiderable luxury and display of the french court in this period it is much that we are able to give approximate figures for the revenue and to guess what was the weight of the public burdens and how and on whom they pressed moreover the financial institutions are themselves of rare historical interest for each anomaly of the system is a mark left on the structure of the government by the history of the nation the history of french finance in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries can be summed up with relative accuracy in a few words when philip the fair first felt the need of extraordinary revenue he endeavored to secure the consent of the seigneurs individually for the taxation of their subjects. Afterwards, the estates made grants of imposts, direct and indirect, to meet exceptional emergencies. As the result of masked or open usurpation, the kings succeeded in making good their claim to levy those taxes by royal fiat over the greater part of the kingdom in the earlier half of the fifteenth century it was still usual to secure the consent of the provincial estates of at least the centre of france for the tie under charles the seventh this impost the last and the most important became definitely and finally an annual tax and the fiction of a vote by the estates whether general or provincial was almost entirely given up in Languedoc from that time till the reforms of francis i no important change in method was introduced the screw was frequently tightened and occasionally relaxed new provinces were added to the kingdom and received exceptional and indulgent treatment but the main scheme of finance was fixed many of its features indeed were to remain unaltered till the revolution the revenue, as collected in the latter half of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century, is classed as ordinary and extraordinary. The ordinary revenue is the ancient heritage of the kings of France, and comes from the domain lands and rights, being increased on the one hand by the acquisitions of the sovereigns, and diminished on the other by war and waste, extravagant donations, and from time to time, by grants of appanages to the members of the royal house a variety of profits accrue to the king from his position as direct proprietor of land or as suzerain rents and fines reliefs and escheats 
sale of wood and payments made in kind form one class of domain receipts while the official seal required to authenticate so many transactions brings a substantial income and the king still makes a profit by the fines and forfeitures decreed by his prévôts and baillis in his local courts the inheritance of foreigners aubain and of bastards is yet another valuable right regal francs fiefs droit d'amortissement are further items in a long list bristling with the technicalities of feudal law as developed by the kings with a single-minded attention to their own interest language if not public feeling still insists that this revenue is to be regarded as ordinary while other revenue is in some sort extraordinary if not illegitimate but a king who should attempt to live upon his ordinary receipts would be poor indeed the expenses of collecting the domain are heavy the waste and destruction of the hundred years war and the extravagant administration of successive kings have reduced the gross returns until under charles the seventh the domain is estimated at no more than fifty thousand clear annual livres tournois and although under louis the eleventh it may have risen to one hundred thousand under louis the twelfth to two hundred thousand or more the total is insignificant compared with the needs even of a pacific and economical king footnote an exact equation is impossible but the purchasing power of the livre tournois in the later fifteenth century was probably not much greater or less than that of the pound sterling to-day to his assistance come the aide gabel and taille the aides are indirect taxes formerly imposed by the estates-general but levied since charles v by royal authority there is a twentieth levied on the sale of goods and an eighth sometimes a fourth on liquors sold retail there are many kinds of duties and tolls levied on goods in transit not only on the frontiers of the kingdom but at the limits of the several provinces and elsewhere these imports multiplex as they are and oppressive as they seem bring in from the farmers who compound for them no more than five hundred thirty five thousand livres tournois in fourteen sixty one and in fifteen fourteen their return has not risen above six hundred fifty four thousand livres tournois languedoc has its separate excise duty on meat and fish known as the equivalent and collected by the authority of the estates the gabelle du sal once a local and seigneurial tax has since the time of philippe de valois become a perpetual and almost universal royal impost as a rule the salt of the kingdom is brought into the royal warehouses and left there by the merchants for sale this taking place in regular turn a fixed addition for the royal profit is made to the price of the salt as it is sold and heads of houses are required to purchase a fixed annual minimum of salt in languedoc the tax is levied on its passage from the salt works on the sea-coast and the black salt of poitou and saintonge gets off with a tax of twenty five per cent 
but the general principle is the same from a quarter upwards is added to the price of a necessary of life and the product is in fourteen sixty one about one hundred sixty thousand livres tournois rising in the more prosperous times and with the more accurate finance of louis the twelfth to some two hundred eighty thousand livres tournois finally there is the taille fouage hearth or land tax the gradual process by which the right of the seigneurs to levy taille on their subjects had passed into the exclusive possession of the king is too long to admit of being followed here here as in other cases the estates at first permitted what the king afterwards carried on without their leave under the agonizing pressure of foreign and civil war charles the seventh was allowed we can hardly say that he was authorized to transform the tie into an annual tax levied at the king's discretion the normal total was fixed at one million two hundred thousand livres tournois but charles the seventh established a precedent by imposing cru or arbitrary additions to the tax levied for some special emergency the intervention of the estates in Languedoc and outre-seine ceased in normandy it became a mere form in languedoc it was reduced to a one-sided negotiation between the province and the king in which he might show indulgence but the deputies could hardly show fight yet resistance was not infrequently tried and was sometimes successful even with the inexorable louis the eleventh on the other hand even in languedoc a coup is sometimes ordered and paid without a vote though never without protest the tie fell only on the roturier and spared the privileged orders of clergy and noblesse in languedoc the exemption followed the traditional distinction of tenements into noble and non-noble in Languedoc, the peasant paid if occupying a noble fief the noble was exempt although in actual possession of a villain holding thus the clergy and the nobility escaped except in a few cases the direct burden of the principal tax speaking generally they did not escape the burden of the ed and the gabelle though they had certain privileges royal officers for the most part escaped not only tie but gabelle many of the principal towns also escaped the former such were paris rouen laume rams tours and many others there were other inequalities and injustices normandy paid one-fourth of the whole tie a monstrous burden upon a province which had suffered not less than any other from the war the proportion of one-tenth fixed on languedoc was probably also excessive in the recherche of fourteen ninety one it was calculated that languedoc paid nineteen livres tournois per head outre-seine twenty-seven normandy sixty and languedoc sixty-seven an estimate which may be very far from the facts but gives the result of contemporary impression guyenne when added to the direct dominion of the crown escaped in large measure the ed and was allowed to vote a small contribution by way of tie 
burgundy compounded for her share of taille by an annual vote of about fifty thousand livres tournois contributing also to Ed and gabelle provence was allowed to keep her own estates and to vote a moderate subsidy the independent and privileged position of brittany was not altered until after the death of louis the twelfth dauphine was treated with a consideration even greater than was warranted by its poverty thus the main tax unevenly distributed as it was pressed the more heavily on the cultivators of the less fortunate regions it is not uncommon to hear of the inhabitants of some district under charles the seventh or louis the eleventh preferring to leave home and property rather than bear the enormous weight of the public burdens the taxable capacity of the people was constantly increasing in the latter half of the fifteenth century but under louis the eleventh the burdens increased with more than equal rapidity the tie increased from one million thirty five thousand livres tournois in fourteen sixty one to some three million nine hundred thousand in fourteen eighty three from the pressing remonstrances of the estates in fourteen eighty four a great alleviation resulted the tie was reduced to one million five hundred thousand livres tournois and although the expedition of naples the war of brittany and other causes necessitated a subsequent rise the figures remained far below the level of louis the eleventh's reign louis the twelfth was enabled in spite of his ambitious schemes to effect further reductions but the war of cambrai and its sequel swept away nearly all the advantage that had been gained the revenue raised in fifteen fourteen was as high as the highest raised under louis the eleventh but the ed and domaine were more productive the tie was less and weighed less heavily on a more prosperous nation under philip the fair and his successors down to charles the seventh a considerable though precarious revenue had often been realized by the disastrous method of tampering with the standard of value in the latter years of charles the seventh and under his three successors this device was rarely employed a considerable depreciation may be indeed observed between the standard of louis the twelfth and that of charles the seventh but the changes were far less important and frequent than those of the earlier period a certain revenue was obtained by legitimate seigniorage and the illegitimate profits of debasement and the like may be almost neglected the system of collection was still only partially centralized and marked the imperfect union of the successive acquisitions of the monarchy for the collection and administration both of domen and extraordinary revenue the older provinces were distributed into four divisions western Languedoc was administered with guyenne but the parts of Languedoc beyond seine and ion when reunited to the crown about fourteen thirty six were organized as a separate financial group normandy formed a third and separate administrative area administrative languedoc that is to say the three seneschaussees of carcassonne 
Beaucaire and Toulouse forms the fourth. Picardy, Burgundy, Dauphine, Provence, Roussillon, and of course Brittany were not included in the general scheme. Milan had its separate financial establishment and maintained 600 lances. In these last-mentioned provinces, the ordinary and extraordinary revenue were administered together. Elsewhere, domain and extraordinary revenue were separated. For the administration of the domain, each of the four main divisions had a separate treasurer, who was practically supreme in his own district. Under them were, as administrators on the first line, the bailli, or sénéchaux. On the second, the prévôt, vicomte, or vigueur. The separation of the receipt from the administration of funds is a principle that runs through the whole system of finance, both ordinary and extraordinary. Accordingly, there is a receveur for each prévôt or other subdivision, and a general receiver for the whole domain, known as the chargeur de trésor. But the actual collection of cash at the central office was, in large measure, avoided, partly by charging the local officer of receipt with all local expenses, and partly by a system of drafts on local offices adopted for the payment of obligations incurred by the central government. The beneficiary presented his draft to the local receveur or grenetier, or discounted it with a broker, who forwarded it to his agent for collection. The same plan was adopted in the extraordinary finance, and made an accurate knowledge of the financial position and correct supervision of the accounts a matter of extreme difficulty. Contentious business was either settled by the bailli or prévôt, or by a central tribunal of domaine finance, the Chambre du Trésor, or, in some cases, by the Chambre des Comptes or the Parlement. The same regions of France were similarly divided for extraordinary finance into four généralités. At the head of each were two généraux, one pour l'effet des finances, the other pour l'effet de la justice. The four généraux de la justice met together to form the Cour des Aides, an appeal court for contentious questions arising out of the collection of the extraordinary revenue. There are other Cour des Aides at Montpellier for Languedoc and at Rouen for Normandy. Each général de finance was supreme in the administration of his own généralité, Associated with each général, there was a receveur général who guarded the cash and was accountable for it. In Languedoc, the partition and collection of tie and the collection of aide was managed by the estates of the province. The other three généralités, except Gaillan, which was administered by commissioners, were divided into élections, a term reminiscent of the earlier system when the estates collected the sums they had voted and elected the supervising officers. The élu, who stood at the head of each élection, and whose duty it was to apportion the tie over the several parishes, to let out the aide, 
and to act as judges of first instance in any litigation that might arise were now as they had long since been the nominees of the king beside them stood the receveur who as a rule handled the product both of tai and ed as a general rule each receveur whether of ordinary or extraordinary finance was doubled with a comptroller whose business it was to check his accounts and fortify his honesty the ed were let out at farm the actual collection of the tie was carried out by locally appointed collectors who received five per cent for their trouble the assessment on individuals was the work of locally elected assures the collection of the gabelle was in the hands of special officers each grenier had a receiver called grenetier and the inevitable contrerolure all accounts of the area so circumscribed were inspected and passed by a superior body the chambre des comptes separate courts were also set up at nantes dijon aille and grenoble for their respective provinces the chambre des comptes of paris was differently composed at different times but consisted in fifteen eleven of two presidents and ten maîtres de comptes it had power to impose disciplinary penalties on financial officers and claimed to be a sovereign court exempt from the controlling jurisdiction of the parlement but this claim was not always successfully maintained all alienations of domain and pensions for more than a brief period of years had to be registered in the chambre des comptes a form which gave this court the opportunity to protest against and at any rate to delay injudicious grants as will be seen this financial system by no means lacked checks and safeguards rather perhaps it erred on the side of over elaboration although an immense improvement is perceptible since the time of charles the sixth there can be little doubt that the system suffered from considerable leakage the men employed in the king's finance were mostly of bourgeois rank jacques cour guillaume and pierre brissonnet jacques de bonne etienne chevalier jean bourret are among the most famous names in many cases they were related to each other by blood or marriage and they all almost without exception became very rich in some cases this need be thought no shame thus jacques cour no doubt owed his wealth to the inexhaustible riches of oriental trade but as a rule servants only grow rich at the expense of their master and it is a sign of evil augury when the servant lends his master money as for instance jacques de bon did on a large scale this great financier was in the ambiguous position of a banker who himself discounted the bills just signed by him for his king the business was legitimate and lucrative because of its very hazardousness but it comported ill with a position of supreme financial trust and responsibility not only was the system of control imperfect and the tradition of honesty unsatisfactory but the scheme lacked unity of direction 
there was no single responsible financial officer jacques de bon sieur de saint blancet fifteen ten to twenty three enjoyed a certain priority of dignity but exercised no unifying authority once a year the treasurers and jeanarot messieurs des finances met in committee and drew up in concert the budget for the year so much being expected as receipt from domain ad and gabelle and so much anticipated as expenditure then the tie must be so much to meet the balance and to a certain extent the council of state kept its hand on finance assisted at need by the financial officers specially convened but unity of management and administration was conspicuously wanting the expenditure of the four kings cannot on the whole if tried by a royal standard be called extravagant the most questionable item is that of pensions pensions were not only used to reward services and gratify courtiers but were also given on a large scale to princes of the blood and considerable nobles historically such pensions may be regarded as some compensation for the loss of the right of raising ed and tie in their own domain which had once belonged to personages holding such positions but which since fourteen thirty nine had remained categorically abolished with the fall of charles the bold and the absorption of brittany the last examples of princes enjoying such rights unquestioned disappeared politically such pensions were intended to conciliate possible opponents and enemies for the great princes though stripped by law of their chief powers still possessed in spite of the law sufficient influence and authority to raise a war how strong such influence might be we see in fourteen sixty five when not only brittany and burgundy but bourbon Amagnac, and d'albret found their subjects ready to follow them against the king such pensions were an old abuse louis the eleventh found in them one of his most powerful political engines and distributed them with a lavish hand the pensions bill rose under him from about three hundred thousand livres tournois to five hundred thousand in addition there were the great english pensions and the pensions to the swiss the totals were probably not much less under charles the eighth but louis the twelfth reduced them at one time so low as one hundred five thousand and seems to have effected a substantial average diminution however the practice of charging pensions on local sources of revenue especially the renier of salt prevents the whole magnitude of this waste from coming into view the expenses of the court largely military rose under louis the eleventh from about three hundred thousand to four hundred thousand livres tournois and seem to have been reduced by half or more by louis the twelfth military expenses are of course the chief item of the budget the constantly increasing expenditure of louis the eleventh is chiefly due to the cost of the army the establishment rose from two thousand lances to three thousand eight hundred eighty four in fourteen eighty three when there was also a standing army of sixteen thousand foot 
at pont de l'arche in normandy including six thousand swiss the cost of the army on a peace footing is not less in this year than two million seven hundred thousand livres tournois the difficulties of louis the eleventh were very great and the result of his military expenditure on the whole commensurate with the sacrifices but he seems in his later years to have been driven by nervous fear to excessive precaution the military budget of the succeeding kings was conspicuously less the war of naples was chiefly waged on credit and at the death of charles the eighth a deficit of one million four hundred thousand remained unliquidated but in no year can the totals of louis the eleventh have been passed perhaps in fourteen ninety six they may have been reached louis the twelfth carried on his wars very economically until the deserved disasters of the war of cambrai the tie of these years speaks for itself it rises steadily from two million livres tournois in fifteen ten to three million seven hundred thousand in fifteen fourteen and the father of his people left an additional deficit of a million and a half the new conditions political and social of the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries in france had long demanded a reorganization of the army service by tenure had lost its meaning since in the time of philip the fair the practice of paying the contingents had been adopted there is little that is feudal in the organization of the french army during the hundred years war much more that is anarchical and a little that is royal at most the feudal aristocracy supplies some of the cadre in which the troops are embodied but the aristocracy is not a necessary but an accidental feature of the scheme the organization of the host and of its units does not follow the lines of the feudal hierarchy the king is a rallying point giving rise to a delusive sense of unity of direction chance and the love of fighting accomplish the rest for a few years the centralizing purpose of charles v warranted better hopes which perished with his death as the war continues the professional soldier the professional captain becomes all in all this soldier or captain may be a noble born to the art of arms but side by side with him are many adventurers sprung from the lower orders they are glad to receive pay if pay is forthcoming if not they will be content with loot in any case they are lawless landless homeless mercenaries who live upon the people and are the terror rather of friend than of foe this lack of even feudal discipline in france is the cause of the success of the better organized armies of england it is also the principal cause of the horrors of the endless war when a respite intervenes the country knows no peace till the mercenaries are sent to die abroad in castile in lorraine or against the swiss to have put an end to this misrule is the conspicuous service of charles the seventh and his successors in fourteen thirty nine on the occasion of a great meeting of the estates at orleans the king and his council promulgated a notable edict the number of captains was henceforth 
to be fixed and no person was under the gravest penalties to entertain soldiers without the king's permission a pathetic list follows of customary outrages which are now forbidden and the captains are made responsible for the good conduct of their men the seneschals and bailiffs are given authority if authority suffices to punish any military crimes whatsoever and wheresoever committed the financial side of the measure is indicated by a clause prohibiting all lords from levying tithes in their lands without the king's leave impeding the collectors of the king's tie or collecting any increment on their own account the king intends to have an army to have the only army to have it disciplined and obedient and to have the money for its pay unfortunately the revolt known as the praguerie which broke out soon after impeded the development of this plan the armagnacs were then sent to be let blood in lorraine and switzerland the warlike operations of fourteen forty four having been carried out the scheme took effect in the following year fifteen companies of one hundred lances were instituted each under a captain appointed by the king it would seem that five more were to be supported by languedoc each lance was to consist of one man-at-arms two archers a swordsman a valet and a page all mounted and armed according to their quality the page and the valet were the servants of the man-at-arms but the valet at least was a fighting man the method of organization is strange but has an historical explanation it had long been customary for the man-at-arms to take the field accompanied by several armed followers the ordinance adopted the existing practice its effect was to establish several different sorts of cavalry light and heavy capable of maneuvering separately and useful for different purposes but tradition required that they should be grouped in lances and it was long before the advantage of separating them was understood for a time the superstitious imitation of english tactics made the men-at-arms dismount for the shock of battle but they learned their own lesson from experience and found that few could resist the weight of armored men and heavy horses charging in line at first the new companies were quartered on the several provinces and the task of providing for them was left to the local estates but before long the advantage of regular money payment was perceived and a tie was levied to provide monthly pay at the rate of thirty-one livres per lance the force of standing cavalry so formed became the admiration of europe their ranks were mainly filled with noblemen whose magnificent tradition of personal courage and devotion to the practice of arms made them the best possible material in four campaigns they mastered and expelled the english in brittany in italy on a score of fields they proved their bravery their discipline their skill they had undoubtedly the faults of professional soldiers but their virtues no body of men ever had in a higher degree even the moral tone of an army that trained and honored bayard could not be altogether bad 
Fortunately, perhaps for Europe, the king's efforts to form an adequate force of infantry were not equally successful. In 1448, each parish was ordered to supply an archer fully armed for fighting on foot. The individual chosen was to practice the bow on feast days and holidays, and to serve the king for pay when called upon. In return, he was freed from the payment of tithe, whence the name Franks Archers. Later, the contingent was one archer to every fifty foot, and under Louis XI it was reckoned that there were some 16,000 men in this militia. Four classes were then differentiated. Pikemen, halberdiers, archers, crossbowmen. They were organized in brigades of 4,000 under a captain-general and bands of 500 under a captain. They did not, however, prove efficient, and in 1479 disgraced themselves at Gingas. Louis XI then dismissed them and established a standing army of 16,000 foot at Pont de l'Arche in Normandy, of whom 6,000 were Swiss. To meet the expense and provide regular pay, an extra tie was imposed. The cost of this army led to its disbandment in the next reign, and Charles VIII tried to revive the institution of free archers. Free archers fought on both sides in the wars of Brittany, but they were not taken to Naples, and, although they are still mentioned occasionally, they saw no further service in the period now under review. Louis Twelfth relied largely on Swiss and afterwards on Germans, but he also organized bands of French aventuriers under the command of gentlemen. Those who guarded the frontier of Picardy were known as the Bande de Picardie. Levies were also made in Gascony, Brittany, Dauphine, and Piedmont, but they were usually disbanded on the conclusion of a war. For garrison duty, a force of veterans was kept on foot, known as Mortepe. But the infantry arm of the service continued to be unsatisfactory. The general levy of all those bound to bear arms, known as Ban et Arrier Ban, was not infrequently called out by Louis XI, but proved disorderly and unserviceable. The artillery was first organized under Charles VII by the brothers Bureau, the French artillery was distinguished by its comparative mobility and discharged iron shot. It was under the command of the Grand Maître de la Tirerie and served as a model to the rest of Europe. We find under Louis XI and afterwards an organized force of sappers. The navy depended still in large measure on the impressment of merchant vessels and seamen. Normandy, Provence and afterwards Brittany were the chief recruiting grounds. In the Italian wars, we find the French kings chiefly dependent on Genoa for galleys. But under Louis XII, a few war vessels were built and owned by the king. The French mounted heavy guns on large ships with excellent results. Everywhere we find invention at work directed, for the most part, to practical construction and consolidation. Commerce was stirring. 
the french were directing their attention to the oriental trade in which jacques Coeur and the bon family founded their fortunes breton sailors went far afield traded with the canaries and madeira and were fishing cod off iceland perhaps on the banks of newfoundland long before the recognized discovery of the new world but internal trade was more prosperous than foreign in spite of paralyzing tariffs on the frontiers of provinces and the myriad pillage which the kings in vain attempted to keep down steady progress was made the misfortunes of bruges and ghent liege and dinan left a gap in home markets which french traders partly succeeded in filling the silk trade took root at tours and lyons and was encouraged by louis the eleventh reviving agriculture stimulated commercial and industrial life in many a country town and small fortunes were frequently made the marvellous recuperative power of france was never more clearly seen than in the half-century after the english wars the middle of the fifteenth century saw a national revival of art in france french miniaturists had long explored the resources and perhaps reached the limits of their charming art the ours of the duke of berry dating from the early fifteenth century are hardly to be surpassed but jean fouquet fourteen fifteen to eighty was not only a master among masters of miniature but a painter prized even in italy his work is interesting as showing the taste for classical architecture in works of fancy long before it had begun to influence the constructions of french builders it is probable that the competition of italian painters for the patronage of the great which begins immediately after the italian wars checked the growth of an indigenous french school of painting which might have fulfilled the promise of french miniaturists in sculpture a school arose at dijon under charles the sixth which is original and fruitful in this school was trained michel colomb who died in fifteen twelve his masterpiece is perhaps the tomb of francis the second at nantes gothic ecclesiastical architecture had lost itself in the meaningless elaborations of the decadent flamboyant but in domestic architecture the corps de métier were still capable of producing such masterly works as the house of jacques Coeur at bourges and in the reign of louis the eleventh the castles of langeais and le plessis bourret still standing solid and reminiscent of the necessities of defence amboise of a still later date shows the same characteristics gradually classical influence begins to modify first detail then construction the results may be seen in louis the twelfth's part of the castle of blois but the golden age of french renaissance architecture is the reign of francis i when first the castle put off its heavy armor and assumed the lightness grace and gaiety so well known to travellers on the loire in literature the excellence of the best is so great that it makes us the less willing to remain content with the dull mediocrity of the mass charles of orleans melancholy musical verse fixes in perpetuity 
the fragrance of the passing ideals of chivalry. Villon, closely conversant with the pathos and humors of the real, veils it gracefully and slightly in transparent artificialities. Comine, naive for all his dignified reserve, cold wisdom and experienced cynicism, ranks alike with those who have rediscovered the art of history and with those who have assisted to perfect French prose. Chastelaine, burdened with cumbrous rhetoric and prone to useless sermonizing, can on occasion tell a stirring tale, and proves his faults to be not of himself but of his school. For the rest, in poetry and prose, whether the tedious allegories learnt from the Roman de la Rose prevail, or the not less tedious affectations of classical imitation, or the laboured tricks of a most unhappy school of verse, there are few names that deserve to be remembered. In the world of thought, the French clung longer than other nations to the traditions of scholasticism. But the school of Nicholas of Cusa, which represents a transitional movement from medieval to Renaissance philosophy, had its followers in France, of whom the first was Jacques Lefebvre d'Etaples and the most distinguished Carolus Bovius. To deal adequately with the men whose accumulated endeavors restored order, unity, and prosperity to France after the English wars would need a volume, not a chapter. Many of them, humble, obscure, energetic, faithful, escaped the notice of the historian. Valuable monographs have been written upon some, but no adequate memorial exists of the most powerful French minister of the time, Georges d'Amboise, without whom nothing of moment, whether good or bad, was done during the best years of Louis the Twelfth. One figure stands out above all others, Louis the Eleventh, of the four kings, the only one who both reigned and governed. Whether we condemn or whether we condone the remorseless rigor with which that king pursued his public ends, whether we regret the absolute monarchy which he established, or accept it as having been the only possible salvation of France, we cannot deny to him the name of great. Great he was in intellect and in tenacity of purpose, great in prosperity and even greater in misfortune. Whatsoever he did had its determined end, and that end was the greatness of France, or, if the expression be preferred, of the French monarchy. The universal condemnation which he has incurred may be ascribed chiefly to two causes. The unrelenting sternness with which he visited treachery in the great, and the severity of the taxation which he found it necessary to impose. The world was shocked by the fate of Jean d'Armagnac, Jacques de Nemours, Louis de Saint-Paul, Cardinal Ballou, and by the cynical methods which achieved their ruin. Looking back without passion, we pronounce their sentence just. The burden of taxes was cruel, and the stories we read in Branton and elsewhere of lawless and inhuman executions are probably not without foundation. These methods may be supposed to have been required to bring the enormous taxes in. 
the estates of fourteen eighty four speak of five hundred executions for offences against the gabelle we need not accept the number the estates believed many strange tales but the suggestion is instructive and helps to explain the legends of apparently meaningless slaughter wrought upon the humble in the struggle for life and death in which france was engaged those taxes and perhaps those executions saved her the king's crimes were national crimes and national crimes are not to be judged by the standards of domestic morality the france of louis the twelfth is the justification of louis the eleventh end of section forty one recording by linda johnson